guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Barbara Warren. She's with uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility and wanted to uh, chat a little bit about climate change and its, especially around its effects on uh, human health and um, just how we're going to be able to survive in kind of the way the world is changing. So, Barbara... Thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thank you. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in um, working with climate change issues around health? Well, um, I'm a retired physician. I've been a member of an organization, Physicians for Social Responsibility, for about almost 40 years now. Mm. And uh, PSR works on the things that offer the greatest threat to our survival on our planet, and one of them has been for many years working on nuclear weapons, getting rid of nuclear weapons, and uh, the other is uh, more currently global climate change and toxic degradation of our earth and our communities. And uh, in the area of climate change, um, I've been the, uh, the executive director of the Arizona chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility for the last um, 10 years. And we have been working on the health impacts of climate change. We had a major conference in 2013 here in Tucson that reached out to our entire community and had 45 uh, national and local sponsors and um, talked about various aspects of the health impacts of climate change. PSR National also focuses on on these uh, issues. So what are the and main... The what conference, are the, we had a problem called Building Resilient Neighborhoods, which uh, I'd like to talk more about today. Yeah, I mean, so what are some of the major health um, issues that um, PSR defines around climate change? Well, we talked both about the health impacts of those things that are causing climate change, that is fossil fuels, and uh, how we need to get rid of fossil fuels, not only because they're causing climate change, but also they're causing a lot of toxic exposures to our members of our communities, especially the higher risk members uh, who have to live in neighborhoods where there's a lot of pollution. Um, We certainly talk about the potential for climate disasters of many kinds, and uh, in our particular area, I live in Arizona, and in the southwest, our greatest threats are extreme heat, which is Mm. also becoming an issue throughout the country and globally. Uh, As our temperatures rise, extreme heat is a serious threat to our survival. Yeah, I mean, I I remember reading an article, uh, I think it was about a year ago, in Nature magazine, and they basically outlined the impact of rising temperatures uh, impacting especially developing uh, economies really dramatically, dropping GDP by like 75% in the next 75 years just because of the temperatures outside are going to be so, so much higher than they are currently. So That's right. And of course, there's there's lots of other impacts of climate, other kinds of climate disasters that affect our economy and our communities, our built environment, and and survival of people. Um, that, that's happening now. So how do we how do we deal with 
the way that the things are changing in terms of you mentioned building resilient communities like what does that entail building resilient neighborhoods uh, is a project that it stemmed from that conference that we had in 2013 where we talked about a lot of different health impacts um, and and how we need to reach out into the community uh, educating people and uh, working in the schools with kids and uh, addressing mental health as well as um, physical health. And one of the aspects of that was uh, looking at vulnerable neighborhoods. And when we thought about our climate disaster, which was predicted to be and is predicted to be extreme heat accompanied by a a regional power outage, Hmm. um, our electrical grids are highly integrated throughout regions and that we've seen major power outages in some of the other climate disasters like in New Jersey where um, after Hurricane Sandy they had no power and when you have a regional outage it's out for two or three weeks because there's so much that has to be done to get the grid up working again and our climate disaster scenario that's rehearsed on by our disaster preparedness people here uh, is extreme heat with a regional power outage and and uh, we know that our our grid our electrical grid is very vulnerable to heat and uh, so that that is a scenario that we have to think about and so thinking about what we do when it's extremely hot when we've been having 100 degree 110 degree temperatures in the summer here and pretty routinely and if we have no electricity, how are we going to survive that situation? Mm-hmm. Because everybody in the community is affected. And there are many, many ways in which people are uh, vulnerable with, the, with uh, extreme heat and no electricity. Well, the challenge is, um, as you have increasing levels of heat, you have increasing use of air conditioner, which then drives up electric demand and demands on the grid itself. That's true. And that also can precipitate uh, great outages, yeah. like happened, like what happened in Chicago in uh, their heat disaster. And I think it was about 1995 when they had they lost seven over 700 people. And one of the problems was intermittent grid or power outages because the grid was uh, there was excessive demand on the grid. And that's uh, one lesson we learned from our conference. We had a keynote speaker, Dr. Eric Kleinenberg, who is a sociology professor from NYU, who uh, has done a lot of studies of the the impacts of climate disasters around the country. And looking at, he wrote a book called Heat Wave, a Social Autopsy of a Climate Disaster. Mm. Um, and he uh, came up with uh, something that seems like a no-brainer, but it's something we're not doing anything about, and that is that the most important variable in deaths and deaths occurring in these climate disasters is lack of social cohesion, lack of cohesion in neighborhoods, the failure of people uh, being able to help each other and uh, survive. So we took that information and developed a project and follow-up to our conference uh, called Building Resilient Neighborhoods that focused on our climate disaster and uh, what needs to be done to make us safe in our community when you have a disaster that affects everybody and there's no way that our hospitals or our 
disaster facilities or even those um, shelters that people create can manage everybody. <laughs> so we, so people are told they need to shelter in place, and how how are they expected to do that safely? So by that's building the area, area of work that wasn't being done. So what we that's how we, we developed our building resilient neighborhoods uh, workshops and program. So really what you're talking about is really building relationships between people within communities, right? It's one-on-one -on -one connections so that people aren't isolated, really. That's part of it. Uh, we developed a workshop. It's a volunteer program with members of the community. We've developed uh, presentation materials and a workbook and a citizen's guide of res for resources to talk to people about... Um, what our scenario is, our potential scenario, uh, what is extreme heat, and how do you deal with it? How do you recognize heat exhaustion and heat, heat stroke and prevent mm -hmm. that? And when is extreme heat uh, life-threatening, and how do, you, how do you deal with that? We also talk about who's vulnerable in the community, uh, understanding who's the most vulnerable that needs to be... Uh, to get special attention, and that's very the very young, the elderly, the homebound, the disabled, and um, and then all of us who don't understand these issues or how to deal with heat. We we understand heat in the Southwest, and we do a pretty good job of taking care of ourselves and in, in the extreme heat conditions we always have in the summertime. But we don't understand how to deal with that when we don't have electricity or air conditioning. Hmm. And so those are those are problems that we need to deal with. We also talk about um, neighborhood cohesion and how and why it's important, and then get people talking about in within a neighborhood how they can begin to build more relationships and knowing who is vulnerable and who needs the most help, and having a game plan for people to work together in such a situation. And then we talk about how they can build resources that can make them be able to survive. Um, I mean, they're simple things like having having food stored on hand, having having plenty of water stored on hand. Because when you don't have electricity, you can't pump water. Yeah. Uh, being able to charge batteries and, or use battery operated and uh, other kinds of non-electrical uh, operated equipment, and also using the, the resources of the sun to to do this, uh, solar charging uh, batteries or solar charging equipment that can um, uh, like charge our cell phones so that we can communicate. Having crank radios, um, it's kind of like just uh, the uh, survival equipment that we need in a way, but a lot of these things you can have in your home and have ready. And uh, there's even solar charged refrigerators. Think of what people have to do when they have medications that require refrigeration. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, one of the one of the challenges in terms of solar is there's obviously solar has grown immensely over the past like ten years, but one of the biggest resistors to expansion of solar, especially uh, you know rooftop individual solar, is really the utilities themselves. In a lot of places, uh, utilities have resisted uh, integrating rooftop solar into kind of their overall game plan, which, you know, obviously that's uh, an impediment to kind of creating resilient communities. That's absolutely right. And, and that's uh, what's happening here in Arizona. They're taking away from us, taking that away from us. We had the 
good support from the utilities originally when the uh, the goals were set on a national level for us to be able to uh, offer more clean, safe, renewable energy in our communities. And at first there were rebates, and then there was and tax tax incentives, and and, uh, and uh, a lot of support from the utilities for putting solar on houses, and then. I think the utilities decided that they want to be in the game and not work through homes. <laughs> but the other problem with solar is that we need to be using energy storage, um, and we can do that at our homes as well as within our utilities. Uh, developing strong energy storage uh, is very helpful because solar isn't available 24 hours a day, and it isn't available every day. So we need to be able to store it, what we create in excess. and. That's something that's also been somewhat resisted by the utilities. Um, I think they're still in love with their fossil fuels, <laughs> and they talk about uh, stranded assets and fossil fuels, which are uh, that they've already invested in. Which is just a shame because the fossil fuels are what are what are causing the problem we're dealing with. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Well, one of the other challenges is um, utilities have this need to really upgrade their infrastructure in terms of distribution, but it would seem like, you know, distributed solar would really be a, a partial augmentation or solution to the need to upgrade the infrastructure itself, so. Absolutely. Uh, not only with homes, but with on business, with businesses, uh, buildings downtown, uh, uh, in many different ways. We also need to deal with the vulnerability of the electrical grid. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's above ground, uh, that the wires are above ground, make them very vulnerable to heat and increasing heat. But it's very, very expensive to bury um, electrical, electrical transmission systems. And so um, decentralized um, elect electrical sources and energy storage, I think, are the answer that people are looking at, answers that people are looking at, but they need to support that for homeowners as well. Yeah, yeah. They want to have solar and they want to be able to deal with uh, electrical power outages, whether they're short-term or long-term. And um, that's one of the answers, but there are many, many different ways we can use solar um, to power the things we need to do. There's a lot of equipment that's being developed out there, and it's uh, being provided uh, especially to people who are going out and doing big treks in the, you know, internationally and, and needing to be able to be out there without any electrical sources and being able to survive. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's great equipment and resources that we can not only um, use in those situations, but at our home in terms of uh, being able to survive. But of course, PSR is very interested in not having to get to this point that we really need to be working on building um, resilience to climate change through uh, promoting clean, safe, renewable energy in every way possible. And, and that's what we're talking about. Solar is one of those. Mm -hmm. So one of the um, one of the issues I've seen mentioned before is uh, asthma is really being you know, one of a, a side effect of rising temperatures around climate change. How does climate change drive or worsen asthma in terms of health conditions for people? Uh, 
I, I think maybe probably changes in pollens, exposure to pollens, um, and different situations. I think I'm I'm much more aware of the asthma that's caused by the fossil fuel burning with the uh, coal in neighborhoods. Yeah. That's that's a huge problem, and 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 it's especially a problem for people who have to live in neighborhoods where there are, where the coal is burning, and it tends to be low income. Um, Populations that have not a lot of power to do something about it or get away from it, uh, which is a shame, a terrible shame. And so, and asthma, I, you know, again, it's it's probably changing exposures to different kinds of pollens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not the heat itself that's causing asthma. But our our ecosystems are changing. Uh, different kinds of exposures are happening. Gotcha. We're also being exposed to new kinds of infectious diseases as they migrate, uh, with, as the mosquitoes or the vectors migrate north uh, or in different to different parts of the world where we haven't had exposure to these diseases before. So you mentioned um, building uh, resilient communities. So is the... What do you do in terms of trying to bring people together? Is it a matter of kind of reaching out to organizations that exist, like uh, churches and so forth? Or do you have to, I mean, what kind of buy-in do you have to have in terms of a community to make a, a substantial difference in terms of building these kinds of connections between people? Well, for our Building Resilient Neighborhoods project, it's neighborhood by neighborhood. And yes, we've had to reach out to uh, various kinds of groups. It's uh, local government, um, our, our, our uh, city council members' um, districts. Uh, we, we've, we've presented to groups that uh, offer services, like we have a program called Lend a Hand that deals with offering services to high-risk uh, populations, people who are homebound and need help, and uh, then we then we work with neighborhood leaders through neighborhood associations, going from neighborhood to neighborhood. And that's a very hard job, and it's hard getting the neighborhoods to commit. Mm-hmm. We try to get support from uh, community leaders in terms of promoting what we're doing, and uh, the health department is trying to work on this as well. The state has a uh, program that was funded by the CDC to provide information on, on heat exposure and heat risks and heat high heat days and how to be safe and so forth. And that comes out of Phoenix, which is not our community. But uh, there are people doing various things. PSR has also gotten involved locally in a pro- project called the 2030 District, which is something that's developing all over the country. Is in um, about 22 cities now. And this is a project to uh, gather support from local building owners and businesses to commit to reducing energy, water, and transportation by 50% by 2030. Mm. And they're doing this. Uh, It started in New Mexico, went on to Seattle. Uh, Seattle has three or four districts now. And uh, we work in a, a dense part of the community where there's a lot of use of energy and water. So this is prevention, uh, trying to deal with climate change itself, um, and 
and in a sense is also building resilience, building resilience to climate change itself rather than uh, disaster exposures. Hmm. Yeah, because they've already started. They've already started down the path. So it's like, why not just take one more step and, you know, uh, connect on this additional level. So, whatever we can do to stop the progression and uh, prevent the risks of these climate disasters is extremely important, obviously. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we can't forget that we have to address climate adaptation. And this is one of the many ways that we have to adapt to climate change, and that is the dealing with um, human risk, human exposures to the disasters. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, when we had talked before, um, there was a group that was proposing new legislation, OSHA legislation, for people who are uh, who have to work outside. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. This is a, a heat campaign that has started with... Uh, Public Citizen in Washington. Uh, that's Ralph Nader's, one of Ralph Nader's mm. groups. Okay. And uh, this is a group of people that have been working with people all over the country, with agencies and organizations all over the country to develop um, a, a standard that OSHA would adopt to require employers of outdoor workers to offer whatever they could do to protect outdoor workers from extreme heat exposure and death. And there's a lot of that happening, unfortunately, and there's a lot of carelessness out there in which people have died because they've been forced to work outdoors for long periods of time, not given rest periods, break periods, water, adequate water, and basic things to to prevent heat death. Mm. And so that's uh, that's doing going on very well. There's um, Worker, worker health and safety advocate project at Public Citizen, and I have contact information if anybody's interested in getting involved in that. Um, there's also a project here at the University of Arizona with our um, climate scientists. One of them, uh, Dr. Greg Garfin, has developed a program called the Border Heat Initiative, where we're working with people uh, and agencies all along the entire U.S.-Mexican border. So in Texas and in Arizona and in New Mexico and in California, uh, finding ways to educate people about exposure to extreme heat and to work on prevention uh, of heat illness and death. And uh, that's going pretty well, working with health departments, working with local folks, actually working on the Mexican border with um, the Promotora model of of, uh, people who work in the community as health health advocates um, to educate folks about heat and exposure. Have you so worked been, have you have you worked with uh, people across the border in terms of Mexico in terms of that initiative or to some extent, yes. We've had uh, people come from um, universities uh, here to Tucson and uh, work and work with some of our uh, workshop facilitators and learn more about this and carry the materials to Mexico, but we haven't had, we haven't worked directly. We've provided information and uh, materials that we've developed to share. We put our uh, materials all in, in Spanish language as well as English, so they're available to work in Spanish-speaking communities here in Tucson. But we haven't been, we haven't had the the uh, people power to be able to go broadly 
beyond our own community yet. Mm-hmm. What, um, what's your feeling about the impact of rising temperatures in terms of food supply? It's a serious problem. Mm. Uh, food security is a serious issue. Uh, and in, a, in addition to that, we're dealing with water uh, yeah. supply issues that are becoming much more critical in this part of the country. And with, with both heat and water, our, our crops are seriously threatened. So food security is an issue that we need to also pay attention to very closely. And there are people working on that in this community as well as uh, bringing, bringing attention to that. And, and uh, we're also trying to, I think some of the people who are looking at um, changing our government are suggesting that we need to be changing the, what we're growing in our communities that use a lot, or in our state anyway, um, they use a lot of water and don't provide the kind of food security we need. We ought to be providing, growing different kinds of things. And like what? That's just, well, food crops. Mm-hmm. Food crops instead of cotton and uh, uh. alfalfa and products that are exported to other parts of the world. Hmm. That's what we're growing here. And then, of course, California faces the same kinds of issues with water shortage and, and food security threat, threats to one of the high, most highly productive areas in the country for our, our food systems. I mean, um, my understanding is there's been a, an ongoing drought, in, obviously, in California, but is that the same situation throughout the Rockies in terms of, like, a lack of snow and uh, kind of snow melt contributing to a lack of water? Or is it Absolutely. just... Absolutely. Okay. Our reservoirs are drying up, um, not completely, but you can... You can see pictures of our reservoirs, or you can see the, the bathtub, they call it the bathtub ring line, yeah. where it shows you where the water was a few years ago and where it is now. So our food, our water supplies are coming from the Colorado River, and and uh, that's a serious threat. What we're trying to do in Tucson and other parts of Arizona is create stores of groundwater to look at uh, reusing water uh, that's Know, recycling water that mm-hmm. uh, wastewater and purifying it and and enhancing our drinking water supply uh, this it's a, it's a very serious threat in Arizona New Mexico Nevada uh, we're all looking at these issues very very carefully I know there's a couple of cities uh, the past year that have gotten really close to being without water at all uh, around the world. Um, Atlanta, a couple of years ago, um, there was, I think it was Cape Town in South Africa last year was um, within days of being without any water at all. Um, is that a similar situation in like, the cities in the south southwest? That hasn't happened where we have no water supply yet that I'm aware of, but uh, it certainly could, and that's something that's very frightening, especially in cities. Yeah. <laughs> smaller communities, people could uh, probably get help from elsewhere, but uh, it's a very, very, it's a very difficult situation, a very threatening situation. And yes, it's from lack of, of snowpack. Um, that's, that's all related to climate change. Do you think that? Uh, do you think for people in the Southwest uh, of the United States, do you think it becomes a matter of 
relocating to a different area, whether it's in terms of because of lack of water or higher temperatures, basically becoming, I would say, climate refugees? I don't think we've come to that yet. Uh, that's certainly something people think about. I have friends who have moved to other parts because they can't take the heat anymore. For example, gone to Northern California. But, you know, wherever we go, we're going to be facing threats, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's very disturbing. So with PSR, we like very much to think much more positively in that we can turn this around. We still believe that we can turn this around. And we have a chance right now that we need to glom on to as fast as possible by getting rid of fossil fuels, mm-hmm. all fossil fuels, and going to clean, safe, renewable energy. And we can do that, but we have to do it very quickly. And we really need to... Uh, get that message out and get the support for that and advocate for that and encourage our lawmakers to make that happen as fast as possible. But this is the time now. We have this window where we can really turn this around. It's, it's a shame to have to think about these threats and trying to survive with these threats when when there's something we can do about it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, one of the, um, you know, one solution or one action step I... Um, what became aware of um, a number of years ago was divestment of really public uh, assets from carbon, high uh, intense carbon companies. Um, has PSR taken any steps regarding divestment of assets for to kind of drive that activity? We definitely support it. PSR is not an organization that has a lot of assets, financial no, assets, no. a huge amount of financial assets. We definitely have encouraged our membership, both nationally and locally, to, to do that. I've been divested from fossil fuels and other things that I don't think we, are good for our society for probably 30 years now. Good. And uh, I think a number of other of our PSR members have as well, but we could do a much better job of that, and we could also do a better job of educating people about that as one of the ways in which we can make change, uh, effective change. Uh, if we can't, if we don't support these in our financial community, then they're going to have to think differently. We support solar, and we support wind, and there's hydropower. There's a lot of other sources of electricity out there that are clean and safe and cheap. <laughs> Well, and at the end of the day, it's it's also about companies that are going to be making money going forward. And honestly, I mean, when you look at the prospects for, you know, what's the growth industry? Is it going to be, you know, uh, coal or oil, or is it going to be electric vehicles? I mean, it's going to be the growth of electric vehicles that's going to drive change, and it's going to create the next round of profitable companies. You know what? That's right. So, that's right. you know, yeah. to continue investing in an asset that's, you know, horse and buggy technology, so to speak, just doesn't make any financial sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are getting this not, not only in our country, but around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am love driving my electric car. It is fantastic. What kind of car <laughs> do you have? It. I have a Nissan Leaf, and nice. I've had it for seven years now, and I charge it with the solar panels on my house. There you go. And uh, and I, uh, it's, it's, it's a 
one of the first cars. It doesn't get the range that I need to go long, long distances, but those those cars are being developed, and, and Tesla's building the electric charging highway to be able to go very long distances mm-hmm. and stop along the way and charge a car. Uh, so meets my needs just fine for getting around everywhere I need to go and every day for lots of meetings. And, well, I mean... Uh, um, you know, my spouse has a uh, um, Tesla Model S, and uh, you know she's had it for about four years. And the um, the changes that have taken place in the last four years, in terms of just the extension of range and also battery technology, has been you know exponential. So yeah. you yeah. know the cars in the next couple of years are going to be leaps and bounds ahead of you know, what's existed before. That's right. Absolutely. So. And, and there are many, many more of the auto industry um, companies that are putting out electric cars and hybrids. Um, and you can, you can find one anywhere, <laughs> pretty yeah. much. Yeah, I think it was, uh, uh, I don't know if it was Subaru or Volvo uh, announced that they were going to stop producing uh internal combustion engine cars and just focus on EVs going forward by, I think it was 2025. Um, That's some, right. Some, yeah, close, some close date, I mean, compared to, you know, the, the technology that it's going to take to get there. But still, I mean, that's to change the entire um, work of a company in that period of time is, is substantial. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's right. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Um, if people want to learn more about the work that you do and, and the especially the Resilient Communities Initiative, uh, how could they reach out to you? How could, what could, they, how could they contact you? We have a website, buildingresilientneighborhoods.org, uh, where they can learn more about that program. It's about neighborhoods, and uh, that's our focus. Um, and they can uh, there's a, actually a, um, an interview on there with uh, a local radio station that people can listen to and hear more about how a workshop goes uh, what, what it's like what are the, what's the content and what are people are, what are people doing in neighborhoods around following up, following up on those workshops uh, my email is bwar re01 at gmail.com and people are welcome to contact me directly um, awesome uh, we have a we have a Facebook page for PSR Arizona uh, that's not dedicated to this particular project however and uh, no but for people to become more educated and more involved I mean that's that's awesome so I appreciate your taking the time to chat today and sharing your uh, your insights. I, you know, I have visited uh, Arizona once, and it was during the summer. It was challenging to say the least. So that's right. I think you, uh, yeah, you have your uh, work cut out for you. So yeah, it is challenging, and it's it's pretty oppressive, and it it's uh, it makes you really acutely aware of what we're facing. Uh, in a lot of other parts of the country and the world as well. Exactly. All right, well, thanks for taking the time, and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, thank you. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you. Hold it. Bye-bye.